This is the Conduit Church Teaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us, starting with the teaching of His Word. Enjoy the message. Open your Bibles to the book of Mark. I'm just going to read through verses 12 through 26 today. And if you're not a Bible bringer, I get that. Like, it's our world. It's, but can I encourage you, uh, whether it's on your phone or whatever, we tell our kids in soccer, get more touches on the ball. You get more comfortable with it, more uh, adept with it. And um, there's just something about that. So if you, if, if, no judgment if you don't have it, but I'm just saying, it's a good idea here. We're, uh, I had a pastor once who visited from another town and said, well, you guys use the Bible a lot when you teach. <laughs> He's actually a really great guy. I don't think he meant it to say it the way it came out, but I was like, yeah, we, we just kind of do because if that's what we figured God you know, gave it to us, we should do something with it. But, um, but we do. We, this is something we believe here, that this is God's Holy Spirit-inspired, inerrant, communicated word to you and to me. And so it's uh, not an academic exercise. This is a Holy Spirit encounter with his word. So with that said, in verse 12, on the first day of the Festival of Unleavened Bread. We're going to talk about what that is in a minute. Caitlin, Ken, do you have any idea what the Festival of Unleavened Bread is? Like in my house, that was like when my mom baked. It was always like she she couldn't make bread rise for some reason. My mother, God rest her soul. When it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat Passover? And so he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. By the way, that would have stood out in those days, even in these days in most developing nations, when you see somebody carrying water uh, to the well and from, it's either going to be a child or it's going to be a woman. You never see a man. So this was like a, you'll, this will stand out to you. It won't be probably be the only guy you'll see with a jar of water on his head. Follow him and then say to the owner of the house, Uh, He enters. The teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready to make preparations for us there. So the disciples left, verse 16, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. And so they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. And while they were reclining at the table eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Dum, 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 dum. Like the music, you're looking around like, what are you talking about, Jesus? They were all saddened. And one by one, they said to him, surely you don't mean me. Surely it's not me. And it's one of the 12, he replied, verse 20, the one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him had he had not been born. And while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it. This is my body. And then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And then he says, verse 24, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. 
He said to them, truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I wonder to this day what that hymn was, and I think we'll one day in heaven maybe know it and get to sing it together, but I'll bet it was beautiful and potent. So that's God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your word to be the light and the lamp for us today, the one that you promised us that it would be. Lord, in a, at a time like this, we're reading these words of you and this supper and this bread and this wine and this story that you're telling. This is such an important, pivotal, focal point of history happening. So it's my prayer, Lord, that my words would not get in the way of your word. It's my prayer, Lord, that your word would be the light and the lamp that you promised it would be for me personally, for my church family, corporately. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. There was an article a couple of years ago by a guy named Nicholas Kristof. He's a New York Times writer. When he's not writing about like the coronavirus. Is it corona? Do we know? Because I feel like Corona is missing a giant marketing opportunity. Um, when he's not writing about that or impeachment, he, he's, he's, uh, this is a guy that's clearly seeking in his faith. And, and he interviewed Tim Keller. It's been a couple of years ago. In fact, he just interviewed Philip Yancey just in December. And the title of the question is, is am, I a, am I a Christian? This is the question that he's asking. Am I a Christian? Uh, to Timothy Keller. And the, the question he's asking is, what if I don't believe in the resurrection? There are certain things, like I love the teachings of Jesus. I love that his model and the things he does. But what if I don't believe that he was, it was a virgin birth? What if I don't believe in his resurrection and his exact words were, can I just mix and match with it? And the, you know what? That's kind of a good question. Tell him I said hello, Donna. <laughs> I love it when it happens to somebody else and not me. I'm just saying. <laughs> Actually, I did mute mine. I usually don't. If you're new here, it's about once every other week my phone goes off because I've forgotten to be turned off. Here's Keller's answer to that question. Can I be a Christian and then just mix and match the parts of what I want to believe? He said that if something is truly integral to a body of thought, you can't remove it without destabilizing the whole thing. A religion cannot be whatever we desire it to be. If I'm a member of the board of Greenpeace and I come out and say climate change is a hoax, they're going to ask me to resign. I could call them narrow-minded, but they would rightly say that there have to be some boundaries for dissent or you couldn't have a cohesive, integrated organization and they would be right. And it's the same with any religious faith. And he goes on to, to make a case for the resurrection and, and for the virgin birth. And I, I've noticed lately, though, in our culture that the, one of the questions that seems to be asked is, what if I don't believe that Jesus died for the atonement of my sins? Um, there are authors that you probably know the name of that are saying things very uh, verbally that Jesus did not die for your sins. Uh, he died for to be a, to love you. He died to uh, to be just victorious and die like that. That's sort of the idea. And my question is, for you, is this belief essential or is it one of the Jenga pieces that Keller 
talks about. The problem with adding Jesus to a pantheon of, of other gods is that this death doesn't actually allow for that. And I'm going to show you why uh, in just this Last Supper. We don't have uh, time. I would encourage you as the week goes on to dig into this part about, uh, about Judas. We're actually going to come back and visit that in the coming weeks of what happens with Judas. Uh, but for the purposes of today, I just want to show you that there is a picture of his death that shows us the purpose of his death, and it shows us then what it looks like to appropriate that death in our lives. So first, the, the picture of his death is right here in this Last Supper. We call it the Last Supper. Christianity calls it that. Technically, it was like the First Supper. Like this was the first of many to come and it would commemorate something. It was the, a supper that he was having with his brothers that would be roughly analogous to Thanksgiving. And I say roughly because uh, it's just they had a meal once a year. Um, but it would be like, like at Kayla and Kenzie, if we're going to your house and, and Uncle Kerry, your daddy, picks up the turkey and says, you know, and tells a story about the turkey and the first, and then he takes it. That, that would be what it's like, because that's what they were doing. They were actually going back to a picture of what happened a thousand years earlier. Um, in Exodus chapter 12, there was the people of Israel. Remember Joseph, Prince of Egypt, okay, the movie? Um, or Moses, Prince of Egypt. Sorry, wrong, wrong Disney movie. Um, where Moses leads the people out of Israel. There were all these plagues that had fallen upon Pharaoh, that had fallen upon Egypt, who had kept them in captivity. And on the last of these plagues, there was a judgment that was about to be visited upon them where the firstborn son was going to be killed by the angel of death as he went over every home. But what was happening is they were being told while that was going on, you're going to have to get out of here and you're going to have to get out fast. So that night they were making bread, but they didn't have time to make bread where the bread would rise. So they would have to make bread quickly without leaven. And so unleavened bread is what they made. And that would be the bread that Jesus had at this dinner would be unleavened bread. And at that time, they would actually have three pieces of it. You guys don't normally see it because we have them broken for you. Uh, we charge no extra for you to have the bread pre-broken. Um, but it's, it's called matzah. And... There were three of them, three pieces. And of those three pieces, the one in the middle would be wrapped in a white linen and then hidden somewhere in the home. This unleavened bread uh, had holes pierced in it, stripes on it. There was a picture that they were painting that they didn't even know. Because what they were told was, every year from here on out, after this miracle happened, this picture is now for you. Every year, we want you to have this meal so you can remember what happened that night. That on that night, your son, sons were saved. That on that night, you had to leave quickly. So you had to make bread that didn't have any leaven in it. So eat that bread so you remember the deliverance that God did. And there'll be a lamb that will be chosen, a lamb that would be perfect, a lamb that would be white, a lamb that was flawless, that would be uh, sacrificed that night. They would eat it as part of the meal and the blood of that lamb was put on their doorposts and the angel of death, the angel of judgment as he went over Egypt, as he went over Israel, 
spared anyone who had blood on their door, the blood of the lamb. And Jesus at that dinner, they would have a presider. So again, it would be Uncle Kerry at the Anderson house who would stand up and he would tell the story. He would hold this bread up and say, this is the bread of our affliction, of what we went through. And so at that dinner, at that meal, Jesus, the presider over the meal, holds up the matzah and says, this is my bread of my affliction. This was a controversial, pivotal picture in history. He could have chosen any way he wanted to have made himself known. But long before Jesus stood at that table, this plan had been put in motion. So that when he stood up there that night, that all those years, all those days, all those months and of, of, of waiting and waiting, he was able to say, this is what it was talking about the whole time. The middle one wrapped in a linen and hidden that'll represent my death and my burial. And you find it, it represents the resurrection, this wine. It was a picture of that. Now listen, when Jesus did that dinner that night, he told them, now you do this. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. You do this often in remembrance of my death. Isn't it interesting that Jesus didn't do any sort of sacrament that says, do this often in remembrance of my life? Do this often in remembrance of my resurrection? We do Easter, by the way, but that wasn't a thing that Jesus instituted. It's good and we do it and we celebrate it. No, this is something he says, do this often. And if he's going to say that his death is so important, that this picture is so important, that we need to do it often, maybe there was a purpose behind his death. Maybe that was something that we're not celebrating his life at this meal. We're not celebrating his resurrection. We're celebrating his death. Maybe there was a purpose behind his death that was more important and so important that we have to remember it. And that's what he says here when he goes on into it. And he takes not just the bread, but he picks up the cup. And when he picks up the cup, and we do this every Sunday, right? We have it available. He says, this is the blood of my covenant. And they all drank. It's poured out for many. Now, there are those who would say that it wasn't poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. Uh, there are those who say that it was poured out so that he could show us that he loves us. Uh, it was poured out so that he could show us that he was victorious over us. Um, the problem with that is that that's not what he said. <laughs> I, I was listening to a guy this week, a teacher that I actually really respect a lot, who was saying that, you know, the early church didn't actually believe in the atonement. You know, for the first thousand years, they actually didn't believe in it. They believed in what is called Christus Victoris, which is that Christ was victorious, which, by the way, we believe as well. But these are not mutually exclusive. They're not incompatible ideas. And the problem with this is that maybe what the early church taught, if you go to the first thousand years, they taught a lot of crazy stuff in the first thousand years. My question is, what did they teach in the first few hours of the church being born? What did they teach in the first few years of the church being born? That's what we can hold on to. And what did Jesus teach in Matthew 26, verse 28? The same story, he's, this is Matthew's version of it. He says, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That's just the purpose of it. The purpose of his death wasn't just to show us that he loved us. It did show us that he loved us. But if that's the only purpose, 
right? If I, I love my wife and I want to show her that I love her the way that Jesus did, then someone pull out a gun and shoot me right now so I can show her how much I love her. You know what I'm saying? If that's the way that you show someone how you love them, when you think about it logically, it actually doesn't make any sense at all. What does make sense is if someone was going to shoot my wife and I jumped in front of the bullet and then I died for her and that shows her that I loves her. Loves her. That I love her. I'm not conjugating verbs very well this morning. That's love. If I'm just doing it to show you that I love her and have someone shoot me to show you, that's just wicked and perverted and crazy talk. That's not how you show somebody that you love them. When I show you, when you show me that you love me and if you were to die for me, it's because you're saving me from a death of my own. And that is what is wrapped up in Jesus saying, this is the blood of my covenant for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. And it's interesting because you might be astute saying, yeah, but Darren, I noticed that he's talking about the bread. He's talking about the wine, but where's the lamb? There's no, this is my lamb. No, because the lamb was speaking. The lamb was there, all right. And this idea literally permeated Jesus's life. Everything he did was leading up to this moment. In fact, in John chapter 12, when it says that he came into Jerusalem, it says that he came there five days before this feast. And I just learned this this week, but five days before the feast, that's when the lamb was chosen for the Passover meal. Like literally everything he did permeated this. His ideas of when he looked over Jerusalem and said, I, I, I want to protect you, I want to, but you won't have me. I would love to put you under my wings like a chicken under, uh, protects her, her chicks, a hen protects her chicks. The idea of that when you've, we, we used to raise uh, chickens, uh, not successfully, I might add, um, foxes and all, anyway. But you would watch a mama, uh, you know, she would literally protect herself over those chicks at her own expense for her own life. And so when Jesus was looking to Jerusalem, I long to gather you under my wings to protect you. Even that idea was language of what he wanted to do, which was to protect us from our sins. The purpose of his death was so much more intense, so much more beautiful than just him coming to show us that he loved us by, by being crucified. question is, what do we do about that? I mean, if he, he died, right? And by the way, he did resurrect. We're going to be in Israel in just a couple weeks, and we're going to go see a tomb that he ain't there. But what do we do? I mean, when you look at even the other world religions, by the way, you can go to the tomb of Muhammad. He died at 62 years old, surrounded by family and victorious Right? You can go to the tomb of Buddha who died. Buddha was at 82 years old, just fat and bald and happy, man, just a f Buddha. And he's still there at his tomb. You can go to Confucius's tomb. I could keep going. By the way, every world religion leader that I'm listing right now, they all lived long and prosperous and successful lives. Jesus died at 33 years old. His public ministry lasted for about three years. 
When you think about that, even just the miracle of Christianity, how do you even explain that that's the religion that took on meaning across the world? Right? When you look at Buddha, you're like, you know what? I like that one. That's the one where I'm fat and happy. I'll follow that one. But the one where I get crucified when I'm 33 and my legs, you know, uh, cut out from under me at the, at the height of my life, and it doesn't make any sense to follow that one. It, like, it, I sign up for that ride? Unless his death had more purpose than just to show us that he loved us. And so what does it mean to appropriate that unto us? And I know in our culture right now, the word appropriate has a pejorative, it has a negative connotation because embedded in the idea of appropriating something, you've heard of cultural appropriation, it can mean that it is without permission. I'm taking this for my own with, even without your permission, but it doesn't have to mean that. It can mean what Jesus chooses to tell us here, which is appropriating that death means I have to take it into myself and to receive it for me, to appropriate it, to make whatever he has done here, make it available to me, to take it for myself. Because what does he say here at this? He says, take and eat this, drink this. You know that you could starve to death sitting at a table full of food if you don't take a bite. I'm sitting at the Lord's Supper at his table of forgiveness and the table in the wilderness in the presence of my enemies. And if I don't take a bite, if I don't drink and receive it in, then I'm going to starve to death. And to appropriate it to myself is critical. As I was thinking about this for us this morning, we live in Williamson County. We live in Murray. Some of you live in Rutherford. Middle Tennessee as a whole. The temptation to say that Jesus died for my sins, for some of us, is kind of a wink and a nod thing, sort of a, a thing that we know we believe he did. For most people in this room, you believe that he did. Some of you, you might not. But the wink and the nod towards sin means that I honestly don't understand the full desperation, the full neediness of who I am and what I need from God himself. If there's one thing that in our progressive politics where they have been rejecting this idea of Jesus dying for our sins is because it means that I actually have to admit to begin with that I am a sinner, that I have sinned. And I don't like that. You don't like that. It feels almost shameful, doesn't it? Doesn't it feel like I don't want to take that shame on myself? But the truth is, the Bible and the gospel deals with that kind of shame in a way that there is no secular methodology that can deal with this shame. There is no humanistic, even in, uh, there are certain branches of like soul cycles, certain branches of, 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 of yoga and Enneagram and all the, where it's basically us saying that this is just how I am. This is who I am and I can't help it. And I'm going to go to my inner child. Has, has anyone ever heard of a guy named Mark Sayers? If I say that name, I was afraid of that. Okay, so I'm going to try to do as best I can. Mark Sayers is a, is a brilliant theologian from Australia. And Mark Sayers uh, was in a recent uh, podcast, was quoted. I'll, I'll post the link of, of an interview with a guy named John Mark Comer, who's an old friend of mine who knows Sayers. But he talks about this idea of secular salvation. Does anyone heard of this idea? He calls it the secular salvation schema. And what he means is this, that every one of us in our Western culture is living out of an idea of a secular salvation schema, even if we don't believe in Christ himself. 
And he says that in our world, it means that the idea of Eden, for, for Christians, Eden is where it was supposed to be perfect. Eden is where it was supposed to be godly and, and, and everything was right, right? And in the secular progressive world, Eden is the inner child. If I can just get back to the way that it was when I was a child. If I, it's almost like a glorification, a weird glorification of like little children. And by the way, if you've ever raised little children... I keep feeling like these are only single people saying this. Because <laughs> the younger you are, the more narcissistic you are. You just don't have the power to do anything about it or you don't do as much damage with it. But that's the idea that that's this idea if I can get back there, that that's where I need to go. So that's Eden. That's the, now the, the, the fall for us is when sin entered the world. The fall for them is when, I'm going to pull up his quote here because I don't want to screw this up. The fall for them is when people are putting on outside influences into our life, anything from the outside, right? Freud, even back in the day, it's all about what's inside me, my inner child, but any expectations put on me from outside, whether it's for gender, whether it is for uh, ethnicity, uh, if it's put on me from the outside, I have to reject that because that is the fall. That is putting that on me and that is what sin is doing. I only can do what's coming from the inside of me. So when you hear somebody say, that's not my truth, this is my truth, this is your truth, they're saying that nothing true can come from the outside, it has to come from the inside. And if you're looking for a clue as to how the, 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 the crush of anxiety, the crush of depression on our culture, you have to start here. Because if I can choose any way I want and I just have to find that inside of me, it becomes overwhelming and depressing and soul crushing. Because what if I choose the wrong thing? What if I don't have the right one? What if I, so in other words, so that's Eden is my childhood. If I can get back to that now in the fall, it's about, you know, this idea inside of me that I can't be any, nobody can put anything on me from the outside and salvation comes in the form of happiness. Any happiness that I can, and the way we get happiness is I just do whatever I feel. I do whatever I want, my truth and your truth, and that's where happiness is coming from. That's their salvation. So you've got Eden, the fall, right, and sin and salvation, and in that idea in secular society is where salvation will come from. And you have to look no further than the statistics of how people are dying of drug overdoses, dying of depression, dying of crushed spirits, to know that in our culture, more than any other culture on the planet, that idea is killing us. Because it requires us to do something. It requires us to either A, ignore the shame of what we've done, to just say, I'm not, nothing is sin anymore, nothing is evil, so I'm gonna ignore the shame. It requires us to do, which is kind of what my parents' age did, which is just ignore the shame altogether, the stoic idea that I'm not going to deal with it at all. I don't want to deal with, I mean, when I was a kid, I was um, completely unaware that my grandparents, they're both with Jesus now, uh, and my mom is too, but I remember 1994 when I uh, got just been married, brought my wife back for the very first time for Christmas, and my grandmother, who had been the matriarch of our family, she was kind of the only one that was sane in this crazy town, and that night, uh, at Christmas, my grandma says to Shannon, I know that you know about the CIA that's after me. I just wish you would tell me 
so that I could get, I was just so scared. And I'm like, what on earth is she talking about? And then she started talking about the FBI was after her. And then she was talking, and what we didn't know was that she was in the beginning stages of dementia. And for those of you that have been on that journey, you know how painful that is. But that night, she also told us about that bleep, bleep, bleep woman. Uh, I don't know who that is. Who are you talking about? And here's what I learned that day. 30 years earlier, my grandfather had had a, 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 an affair. Uh, so much so that my grandmother and my mom, who was a single child, had moved out of the, the home. Uh, for two years, they were apart from each other until they eventually actually reconciled and then came back together two years later and never spoke of it again because of the shame. And so to ignore it is not healthy because what happened in their lives was that shame. It's like a stomach virus. It's coming up one way or the other. Bottling it up doesn't do you any good. That methodology doesn't work. The overriding of the shame saying, well, if we just make nothing wrong, then nothing is shameful. That doesn't work. What does the cross do with our shame? The cross admits that you and I are sinners, that there is no way for me to repay. I can be sorry and ask for forgiveness, and it still doesn't mean that the toothpaste goes back in the tube. I'm old enough now <laughs> to see my kids as adults, a couple of them, and I'm old enough now to see some of the effect that I've had on them in my sin. And by the way, what I want to say to you right now is I did the best I could. But I know that's not true. Not in every step. And as sorry as I am for those moments when I ignored my children or when I bit their head off or the toothpaste is out of the tube. And I, it hit me because I was doing intensive and therapy and counseling. And, and part of that is you go back to the journey of what happened with your parents, what happened to you. And I remember at one point thinking, oh gosh, my kids are going to need to be doing this about me someday. <laughs> like, <laughs> I am not going to be the first parent to grow up in history that didn't do a number on my kids. Now, here's the thing. I could take that as a shame and drown in that shame. And some people do that. And, and you young mamas right now, I'm challenging you, don't do that. The other is that I can just say, Nothing is wrong at all. No sin at all. So I'm not going to, nothing is sinful. So there's no need to feel any shame. But the cross says that, you know what? The shame is real. The sin is real. And you're right. You can't change this. And so the only thing you can do is to come back to the cross and let someone pay the price for what you did to your children, what your children will do to their children. I heard this guy say once, Jesus might be in your heart, but your grandfather is in your bones. And what he was referring to, I think, was Exodus 34 when he talks about how your sins of the father will be visited on the children and on the grandchildren. All that is is what maybe you might call it a generational curse. Who knows what you want to call it? But it's just called sin and the sin and the effect around it. And so what I have to eventually say, what I have to, it's why this death is so important that we understand it. Because the only hope I have is to go to Jesus and to receive, to appropriate this for me because I don't deserve it. 
By the way, if you ignore that shame, what becomes known as toxic shame, which is no longer that I did something wrong, it is that I am something wrong. Toxic shame is just literally me hating the neediness that I have as a human. And what Jesus, I love this in Hebrews chapter 12, it says that he went to the cross despising the shame. Yeah. And when I let that go, the cross is the only cure for that. Because the cross is the thing that I can say that I, I'm a human in this fallen earth that I can never undo this. I can't unring that bell. But the gospel means that the same Jesus that died for my forgiveness died for the forgiveness of my children, died for the forgiveness of their children, it, for all of us. And so when I just say he came to love me, it just sets me up for another way, thing of works. Now all I got to do is just be like Jesus and love like he loved. And that's the only thing I got to do. And that won't be enough to get us in either. The thing about this Passover was this. That night a lamb died in every house because every house needed a lamb. And that house, every house that had a lamb, there was a son that went in there that night that looked in there and looked at a dead lamb and said, that lamb died for me. Every house either had a dead son or a dead lamb. There was no middle ground. And when you hear somebody say that, well, Jesus, I don't like this doctrine because it feels like, you know, I'm just trying to change God's mind about me instead of me changing about God. It's, it couldn't be further from the truth. The Bible tells us that while you were yet sinners, God showed his love, Romans 5, showed his love for you. He loved you while you were sinners. He loves you right now. He'll love you for eternity. You're not changing his mind about you at all. All you're doing is allowing the righteousness of God to become yours so that you can now stand in his presence without being destroyed. I think Tim Keller says it this way. This plan was the way that God could destroy sin without destroying you. That's what this is all about. And you might be thinking, well, Darren, this would be a great time to take communion. Did you not think of that? I did. And then I thought, nah, let's take a week. Why don't you take some time and process this? Process how the, the, his death, the picture of his death, which was told for thousands of years, the picture of his death, which we tell every week, 2,000 years later, was a picture of a body that was broken, that was pierced, that was whipped and striped. We tell the story of blood that was shed I love this phrase, my blood of the covenant. It, it, it's his covenant. I, it's not about me. It's what he did for me. Every other religion, you work hard enough, you might make it in. Jesus is like, I did all the work and all you got to do is receive it and you're welcomed in. That's the picture. That's the purpose. And I pray that you will appropriate it for yourselves this week. I needed it this week. I was on the plane coming home yesterday. I dropped my wife off and I was coming back and I'm, you know, my daughter, I, I'm so proud of her in so many ways and so excited. And at the same time thinking, man, I sure wish I could do a lot of things differently than I did growing up. I wish I wouldn't have taken as many trips. I wish I would have put the newspaper down, put the book away. I wish I would have been all there. And I wish, I wish, I wish, and the toothpaste is out of the tube. And I was kind of maybe starting to like drown in the shame a little bit of like, oh. And I'm sitting there thinking, but what am I, I'm literally teaching on this tomorrow. Like, what is it that this has for me tomorrow? And I was coming back to you, this is even for that. Like I, 
I can't fix that, but what I can fix is that Jesus is fixing me and he is allowing me to now wear his righteousness. And so that one day, I love this, and this is what we're going to end on. Not only standing around the throne will God see us clothed in the righteousness. He'll see us as if we are Jesus, perfectly forgiven, perfect as Jesus. We will see each other that way as well. Your kids aren't going to look at you anymore with all the stuff they're going to bring up in therapy. <laughs> Please. Um, I'm going to look at you and see Jesus. And you're going to look at me and see Jesus. That's why we got to do this often, because we need to be reminded of this. At the core of who we are as humans, whether you're a secular, whether you're a Muslim, whether you're a Buddhist, whether you're a Christian, we all know at the core of who we are, I need to be saved from something. And the cross tells us exactly what it is that I have to be saved from, from my sin. Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that your word today speaks to each of us potently. Oh, and Lord, oh, that you're going to look at me someday and see Jesus, that my kids will look at me and see Jesus, my wife, oh man, praise God, my wife will look at me and see Jesus. I'm just so grateful for that. I'm so thankful. And I pray today that that becomes all of ours. That we appropriate it, make it ours, bring it into ourselves, meditate on it, pray about it, think through it, allow it to sink deep into our souls. Lord, I pray right now that if anybody here is just feeling they just need some prayer, that you just imbue them with the courage to go right out that back door and walk right in there and pray with Ernie and Shirley. They will pray down heaven on them right now. Pray that you give them the courage if that's what they need. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen.